released on Sunday, November 27th, 2016. This Agile Life, Episode 121, The Amos Files. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm John Sextro. This week, we have a special presentation of This Agile Life for you. Our good friend, Amos King, was down in Orlando, Florida at the TechWell Agile Dev East event. And he has two great interviews with two of the speakers from that conference. And without further ado, I'll turn it over to Amos King. I'm here at the TechWell Conference Agile Dev East with John Krusen of Sketch Development Services and just got out of, well, a great lunch. I'm very full. Uh, <laughs> but before lunch, uh, I set in on the session that John gave on um, sketch comedy, not sketch comedy. I'll let you explain it. You'll do a better job than me. Go okay. ahead, John. Yeah. Thanks well, for coming on, by the way. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. <clears throat> um, the It's funny what this thing is called because I, I changed the name of the session for this conference uh, at the suggestion of TechWell. So when I first did it, I called it uh, Waterfall Theater, Experiencing Emergence Through um, Performance. And then um, I realized we're not really, it's not really theater, although there's a, the, that analogy really works too. So I did it again and I changed the name to Waterfall Comedy Hour, Experiencing Emergence Through Performance. And then I was talking to uh, Lee Copeland at this conference, and we t- went back and forth about what's the what the best title would be for it. We came up with "Experiencing Emergence Through Sketch Comedy." So we um, we put the attendees of the session through the ringer, and we actually create sketch comedy uh, sketches, and then uh, tie back the learnings from that experience to uh, what agile teams do on a daily basis and how they go about creating software and allowing requirements to emerge rather than be pre-specified. Uh, so I had, I had a really good time in your session and um, was one of the uh, actors yes. in, in the session. You are, you are the, the voiceover talent. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I, I, can you explain the process that um, you stepped through as a facilitator for this? Because uh, it, it, it is more of a facilitation activity yeah. is what I got out of it. I actually thought I already do um, some improv exercises with yes. my team, like uh-huh. three to five minutes before stand-up. Yeah. And, and I thought, this is a fantastic exercise to actually do as a retro at, ah. at just one of the retros once in a while. Yeah. It's really interesting to see what people take away from it. Yeah, um, because it it really is an experience. It's not a workshop, really. It's not a tutorial. It's not a talk. It's just a. It's like an experience. You have to experience um, something like this to understand what we're talking about when we talk about self organization and that sort of thing. So um, every time I do this, it's a little bit different, though. So to to talk about how I facilitate it or what the what the the format is, it's it truly is different every time and. 
it's really just me setting the stage, saying, okay, here are the general roles, here's the goal, create something funny that lasts 60 seconds, and I will pause every once in a while because I'll be watching and noticing things that I see from the, my experience as a performer uh, and a you know, sketch comedy comedian, and realizing in the moment as the session is going on that's something that I also recognize in self-organized teams that are building software. So I'll just I'll pause occasionally and say, did you see what just happened there? And try to tie those two worlds together. Because you don't have to be an expert you know, in, uh, in the creation of sketch comedy to appreciate what you go through in order to create it. Uh, it's, it's, it it's, there's a book called Artful Making uh, by Lee Devin and Austin somebody. Uh, or maybe it's somebody Austin. Sorry, other author, for not knowing your <laughs> full name. Uh, it's uh, one of the best books I've ever read. I talk about it any chance I get. I think I mentioned it to you eight mm-hmm. times just in the two days that we've been here together. Yeah. Um, but he he points out that in any environment where there is a low cost of iteration uh, and a low cost of reconfiguration, this type of approach works. This type of approach where you can allow things to emerge, where... Uh, you really just start with a nugget of an idea and you experiment on the implementation of that idea and then let the rest of it just build out organically from there. Uh, and sketch comedy and software are both areas where there is a low cost of, uh, of iteration and there's a low cost of reconfiguration. And the iteration, the cost of iteration is uh, easy to understand. But the cost of reconfiguration, they talk about... Um, they draw an example of Toyota's factory floor um, where they were able to take some lean or agile concepts into the factory floor by changing the way their robotic machines uh, were more configurable rather than hardwired. Like uh, they used to have, when they wanted to, when they wanted to stop building one car and start building another car, they had to pull out all of the machinery, re- uh, format the entire factory room floor, pull in the new machinery, and then start production on that that new car. And then they realized, well, we can get a whole lot more done if we just make these uh, these machines more configurable so that we don't have to stop and reconfigure every time. Driving down the cost of reconfiguration so you can experiment over and over and over again very cheaply, very quickly, um, and find out what it is that you're building as you're building it. And so... That, I mean, that's how I think most of our listeners build software, or at least want to, yeah. is in that that iterative way. Um, one of the things that you set up front now was that uh, you have a, a sixty second requirement. Yeah. And when we were in the room, we didn't know yeah. that till later. Yeah. And I, I thought that it actually added some level to what was going on in there. Yeah. Well, to do that, to introduce it later. Yeah. To introduce uh-huh. it later. Um, uh, is that? Like how you do you regularly no, introduce that, was, that later, uh, or did it just happen? I will do it that way from now on because I liked how it turned out. Yeah, but this is I'm, this whole format of what I'm doing is so meta because it's I'm figuring out the best way to do this too as uh, as I get opportunities to do this. Uh, but it's usually something I will forget to say something at the beginning, and then I will introduce it later on. At this time, it just happened to be that sixty second thing. I well, really did like how that turned out. I, I think that. It was such a big constraint compared to where we started. Yeah. That and it, and it caused people to they had like we had a big sketch in mind and then we're like oh no we have to 
boil out some of this yeah. to say yeah. and, and get rid of it. But think about this. And um, the reason that I like the fact that it was introduced late and the, just so that everyone knows what we're talking about, um, the goal that I asked the team to create, and the team was a, a uh, an assembly of uh, cast, a director, and a stage manager. Um, and the goal was create a sketch and in your case, it was based on the idea of a Starbucks that operates using a waterfall process. And then uh, you went through a couple of iterations of building out that sketch. And then before the third iteration, I said, okay, now remember that the sketch has to be 60 seconds. And what I love about it is the fact that you had all of this good, all of these good ideas, but you had uh, all this fluff thrown out in the middle. And, you, and it, was, it was almost as if it didn't really matter um, how much stuff was in there as long as there were a few funny things. But when you, when you constrain it down to 60 seconds after you've built this big thing, it's, it's just a matter of picking out the, the stuff that doesn't matter, like writing for the web. They always say, when you write for the web, you write what you want to write, then cut half of the words out, read what you've got left, then cut half of those words out. And that's, you know, that's a, an appropriate amount of writing for uh, what's on the web. And, um, what I noticed about your sketch when you were done is that it was so clean and it was crisp and it was, it was, everything was like very targeted and very precise. Uh, and I think it was because of that 60 second constraint. And I, I feel the same way with, um, project planning and stories is that throw out all the stuff that you want mm-hmm. and then get rid of half of them and, yeah. and look again and, and get rid of half of them yeah. and figure out which, which pieces of your application really set you apart from somebody else and which ones you have to have to even be useful. Cause yep. that may not be what sets you apart from right. somebody else. Yep. Now I, when, when, when you're using modern development tools, rails, for example, angular, um, you can, you can throw a feature out, uh, you know, just throw it up on the screen in a day or a half a day or an hour just like we did in this exercise, but a lot of these principles that we, we that we experienced in the the session today, it's harder to implement some of those things when it takes forever just to get a very small feature out the door. Um, I just blanked out. I had a question for you, John, <laughs> but it's gone now. Uh, lots of conferences. And not yes. enough time. Um, so, whenever we were going through the sketch and we had eliminated out enough that we thought we actually found that we timed ourselves and we still hadn't eliminated enough and we eliminated more and we eliminated more. Um, and then at the last minute, like during the actual sketch, there were still a couple things that ended up changing. Yeah. And, and we just had to go with it yes. and keep going, and it, and I, I that applies a lot in um, software. And I see people get yes. really frustrated when it happens yeah. at the last minute when they have to change something. Yep. Um, but I noticed in the sketch, it, it felt like a two way street. Like I, as an actor slash developer, um, could change at the last minute. And it didn't make anybody upset or angry. And I think a lot of times whenever we are in the trenches for our company, we feel like we can't make those last minute changes and still be successful according to the company. Yeah. Um, So do you have any ideas for how to make your director 
okay with those last minute changes or your, your manager? Yeah. Um, it's all about that safety net. I mean, the, the last minute changes, the anxiety behind the last minute changes are usually founded in number one, you, you, it didn't go through the, the spanking machine to make sure that it's production ready. And number two, I haven't had enough time to think about it to determine if that's an idea that I want. Um, and when there's that end date, um, that just that seems so final uh, that it, it makes the that product owner feel like this was my last chance. But if it's this consistent, continuous flow of ideas, you can always go back and revisit an idea that that got into production in the past. And we, it was kind of something that came up uh, in the talk afterwards. The, this whole idea of uh, the, it was the other cast that one of the, the actors said, "I felt like I felt stuck. I felt like we were stuck in this premise, and I didn't." Um, uh, he said, I didn't have uh, an opportunity or I didn't feel like I had an opportunity to just reset and say the, the, the whole foundation of the premise of the sketch is not good, or at least my place in it is not good. And that's because it was a one-hour session at a conference. But ideally, we're maintaining a sustainable pace. We always have that opportunity to call and, out and say, yes, this is what's in production today. It no longer makes sense today. Maybe it made sense yesterday, but it doesn't make sense today. Lauren Michaels... One of my favorite quotes about uh, that he is known for saying, producer of Saturday Night Live, we don't go on because it's perfect. We go on because it's 1130. <laughs> it's a live TV show. It's time, right? Yeah. Right. Um, there will always be another opportunity later to make it more perfect. Uh, or, you know, we'll, so they, you know, they do that 830 show and that 830 show is longer than the, 11, the real 1130 show. They do the exact same thing that we did in the sketch. We've got all of these ideas. Some of them are probably pretty bad. Let's take that that eleven thirty time slot and cut out all the less than great ideas. And I'm sure that any of us who have watched any length of Saturday Night Live have seen sketches where you can tell that that sketch did not go the way it did. Right, exactly. <laughs> Especially when somebody, when one of the actors just can't keep their own laughter yes. in, and they're like, "Wait, what?" Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, Will Ferrell was really good at throwing those other yes. people <laughs> yes. off their game. Absolutely. Um, uh, so it, it is interesting to me that he said that. And, and I think it's very astute that he had, um, he, I keep saying he, I should probably, we talked about three or four people there. Yeah, so, right, yeah. um, the other, the other participant yeah. that said that, uh, they felt like they couldn't change things. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's really important that we make sure that we raise our voices. Yeah. Even, even last minute, it, it's better to figure out 50% of the way through a project that this is not yeah. what we need yeah. than 80%, 90% of the way through the project. I think if we had time to inspect what he, what his issue was, we would find that much of his issue was self-imposed. Because mm-hmm. he said, one thing he said that we didn't pay much attention to was, I felt like I had the responsibility of saying all the funny lines. Right. But I would imagine if we actually watched that entire rehearsal process, nobody gave him that responsibility. He just assumed that it was his responsibility. Right. That's something you see in software teams all the time. There's that one person who feels the weight of the world, whether that weight has been formally rested on that team member or not. And it is. It's, 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 that's a, uh, that prevents teams from getting to that high-performing state. Um, because that team member is not being vocal enough, is not saying, hey, I, I have this feeling, I feel like I'm more responsible than everybody else. 
And if you if you were to inspect it and you're really to dig deep into it, there's no basis or foundation for that feeling. And, and I think a lot of times that's the uh, hero archetype that people yeah. say on a team. And unfortunately, they look at that person as that person wanting to do too much. And maybe they don't. They just yeah. don't know how to say anything. Yeah. So we need to reach out yes. to them. Yep. Um, and, and the other thing is when people start to feel that pressure, I think that that leads to them possibly leaving. And they may yeah. be, they, if they could take that off of them, they may be one of the best people to keep yeah. around. Yep. Um, yeah. That's, and it's probably a pattern that they've created for themselves. They enter into a team or they enter into an organization. They uh, assume for whatever reason or another, whether justified or not, more and more responsibility being heaped upon them. And then that's followed by a sense of injustice that why is all of this responsibility being heaped on me rather than being spread equally among the team members? And then it becomes too much. They go to the next organization and blows up again. They leave. They go to another organization. Yeah, it's unfortunate when when a, a good scrum master could identify something like that, draw it out, talk about it, um, and maybe make some explicit changes to the team or... Uh, uh, or team members um, to directly address that uh, that issue, you probably keep some really talented people around for a lot longer. Yeah, and I, I, how do you? I mean, outside of somebody putting in extra hours, do you think there's any signs that somebody's feeling like something is all of their responsibility? Yeah, I'm sure there is. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I rely on intuition a lot and, and the ability to read people. I mean, mm-hmm. people give off signs. There's always the, the over-anxious member of the team, and that anxiety is coming from somewhere. Right. Um, I think the number one sign is when you have the conversation with them and they tell you, I feel like I've got, uh, you know, all of this is, is resting on me, and I'm the one who's going to be called on the carpet if it doesn't get done. That's the sign that they, right. they said it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Definitely right out there. Yeah. Um, so at the at the end of everything, we did have the what did you call it? Ca- not a casting call. Casting call? No, casting calls where you. Oh, what, did I, when I brought everybody up to the front, that yeah. was another new thing. It just felt like that was the right thing to do at the moment. I, call, I said we're going to have an inside the actor studio moment. Oh yeah, that's what it was yeah. called, inside the actors. <laughs> and and I, I thought that was a really big part of your your talk like really presentation uh to me getting that felt like while we were up there acting we were getting immediate feedback from the audience which for me was actually really hard to hear because i was being loud and obnoxious um but to have that immediate feedback from both sides of the cast both sketches and hear from each other what our struggles were like if if you had an all-day class I think it would be really cool to do this yeah. and then say, okay, we're going to do three more iterations now that we've had the inside yeah. the actors. Um, and then you guys are going to perform the same sketch again, but see yeah. how it changes. Yeah. And um, that would be really good. It's similar to when I do boot camps. I, one of my favorite uh, exercises is the marshmallow challenge. I don't, I don't know oh, what that is. Well, you're going to have to join one of my uh, boot camps. All right. right. <laughs> um, it's uh it was I can't remember who created it, but it was popularized by Tom Wujek. Um, he's got a there's a YouTube video out there. If you if you Google Marshmallow Challenge, you'll probably find his YouTube clip. Fun to watch and more fun to participate in. Uh, but one of the so the the whole premise is four people on a team, 
and they're given a, a bag with 20 sticks of spaghetti, a yard of string, a yard of masking tape, and a marshmallow. You have 17 minutes to erect the largest structure, the tallest structure that you can, so long as the marshmallow is on top and the marshmallow is, is the weight of the marshmallow is supported by the uh, the structure. And um, watching those 17 minutes go by and watching how a team forms and how roles are established uh, without being uh, assigned, it's fascinating. Uh, and when usually when I do it, I, I'll do the marshmallow challenge and then show the video. Uh, and one of the things that Tom Wujak talks about in the video is that he, at one point he did it with a really large group and he offered a, uh, an award, uh, $10,000 in software for the largest marshmallow tower erected. Wow. Okay. And he had, I think, I don't know, 20 teams doing it at the same time and none of them were able to build a tower. They all fell down. Wow. Yeah. And it's because of that. It's kind of like when, if you read Dan Pink's drive, mm-hmm. um, the, when you're when you're dealing with more than just uh, mechanical skill, if then rewards lead to poor performance. Yeah, um, there's probably some level of stress that's added by that. Yeah, because right? you're thinking about that end. You're not thinking yeah. about the end goal of the tall tower. You're yeah. thinking about the end goal of I'm getting ten thousand dollars. Right. <laughs> but then he did the same exercise again with that same group, and everyone had a tower, and they all beat the average size of. Uh, uh, the average tower size, um, which I, I think is really interesting. It's that it's the whole idea that if I could just do it again, now that I've gotten the feedback, now that I am smarter about this whole situation, just give me another chance to do it again. Um, that's another power of uh, the other of having a, a consistent, ongoing, iterative environment where you always get that. Okay, I put it into production. Now I've seen it. Now I know what uh, a better solution would be. There's always a better solution out there. I think the I think the problem that organizations get into is that they feel like all of their ideas have to be right. But it's the the organizations with the best ideas are the ones who go in with the assumption that I, I got a hundred ideas, ninety nine of them are probably really stupid. But I'm not going to hide the ninety nine and, and just show the one that I think might be smart because there could be some really you know solid gems hiding in the in that bucket of ideas. So they throw out ideas all the time, and everybody in the organization knows most ideas are stupid. Most ideas are not going to go anywhere, but the way to find the really good ideas is to have more, not less. Yeah. Well, if you look at even angel investors, those guys are supposed to be the best at picking companies that succeed. Yeah. And 90% of the companies that they put money into fail. Yeah. So they're, they're spreading it out. And, and yesterday, oh, I wish I could remember who was giving this talk because I would like to give them credit for, for telling me about this. They um, brought up that there was a 22-year-old guy. He's a multimillionaire now. And he put out 500 ideas. And he would make little bitty applications that kind of did the idea partway and just throw it out there yeah. and let people start using it. Yeah. And he, I think, ended up with four that actually stuck somewhere and two that he now maintains full-time. Yeah, and exactly. He's, he's a multimillionaire. Yeah, right. Um, and it was. It was all about shove a bunch of ideas. And I think in the sketch that we did we kind of had that and when we had to boil it down. Yeah. Right. That's when we figured out which ideas were really working. Yeah. And it's a bit, there's something about that team where everybody just understands, just intuitively understands it's okay if it's a bad idea, but we need, we need as many as we can get. Right. Right. And, and we got to try it out in front of an audience. Yeah. 
And so you get to find out what those bad ideas yeah. are right. real quick. Yeah. Although I think I might have enjoyed a little bit of some kind of joke that caused the crowd to groan instead of laugh. <laughs> just one. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh-huh. Because I like to throw them back when they come in thinking they're just going to laugh and then make them go, oh, uh-huh. I, I kind of like that. Yeah, right. Dad jokes. That's what I call them. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I don't want to take up all of your time from hanging out with other people, uh, but I wanted to thank you very much yeah. and um, I'd like to maybe invite you to come back on sometime. Absolutely. And, and talk some more about this. Yeah, this was fun. And, and Actually, while we're on here, uh, I, I've probably asked you to do this about a million times, but um, your your feedback and running that, I think that you know, I've been in there, and I could probably run this kind of thing as a retro, mm-hmm. but I think that you're in a unique position to be able to run that and give the kind mm-hmm. of feedback that you do because of your history and insights. So I would like that you to share that with with everybody a little bit of your story and your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. I, uh, how deep do you want me to go? Are you yeah. asking for a specific story? No, you don't okay. have to go like super deep. Okay. But yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, I started sketch about, uh, I guess 15 months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, uh, as a rallying cry to change the way people work together. Um, I worked for MasterCard for a couple of years, and um, I was leading their Agile transformation. Uh, and I saw through that work and through the work at Version One uh, as a uh, consultant, where I had the opportunity to do, uh, you know, to bounce from company to company and assess their agility and improve their agility to the extent that they could download some Agile software. Um, I saw that there's an, an enormous opportunity to improve working relationships and just change what it means to work together. Um, so I started Sketch, and Sketch, the reason that it's called Sketch is because uh, I think we can learn a lot from the way performers in Sketch Comedy work together. Um, and I learned that through my my history predating my, uh, my experience in technology and in software development uh, when I was a professional actor. Um, I did the whole professional actor thing in New York for a couple of years, um, Wrote to the casting director of Saturday Night Live for two years in a row uh, until he finally returned my phone call and let me on the show. Um, so I got my seven seconds of fame out of that whole deal. Um, and uh, my wife and I owned a, a performance art studio in St. Louis for a little while, and I, I taught acting and improv to uh, high school kids. Um, and all of those experiences meshed with the experiences that I've had in my, uh, pr- my technical professional life uh, have led me to this belief that there's some some real positive changes that we can bring to the workforce in regards to the way people work together. That's fantastic. Again, thanks thanks for coming on. Um, yeah. And maybe we'll get a chance to act together again sometime. That would be great. Absolutely. <laughs> Looking forward to All it. Right. Thanks, John. Yeah, thank Have you. Have a good day. This uh, I am here at uh, Agile Dev East with... David Hussman from DevJam, and this morning, uh, David, you talked about uh, riffing on the Agile Manifesto, and you had a lot of um, what I might call extension points to the Agile Manifesto, and I, I thought they were really fantastic. Could you share, like, you, you shared a lot of them then, could you share just a, a few of the ones that you find to be really important, and maybe why? So I think some of it comes from trying to look at where success comes from and some of the things that went unnamed. 
So what I did is I tried to use that simple language of sort of this over that. Ward Cunningham once described the Agile Manifesto to me because Ward's pretty brilliant too. And he said, yeah, well, we just sort of frame things in this, this over that language. And I think it's nice because it doesn't say this instead of that and it leaves people some space to think about it. So one of the ones I said was measuring impact over counting story points. That was one of the first ones I said because I think a lot of people assume if they're getting more points done, they're more successful. And that's, I think, more of a measure of progress. An impact would be not that we just got the points done, but we changed the game for the company. More people are using the product internally or externally. Um, more people are trying the product. More people are talking about the product. Um, sales would probably be one of the last things <coughs> I would talk about because it tends to be a lagging indicator. One of the other more simple ones is sort of too big over how big because I think how big is an interesting discussion, but my experience is the bigger something is, the longer it takes to get done. And if you're in sort of a dynamic environment, then the more likely it is to change. So you don't really win that game when something gets to a certain size. You can't tell how big it is. But you can win the game. It's too big. And if you agree with that logic, then the next question becomes, well, how do you break work down? And that was the other one I was kind of talking about was like um, user experiences over iteration buckets. Let's build things that are that are meaningful to people instead of just getting stuff done iteratively. Uh, that's good. And, and you you went into uh, a little bit about story mapping uh, as being part of that. Just for someone who may not have done story mapping before, can you give a small synopsis to what that is? Yeah. So I think I might even compare like story maps to epics. So epics is a pretty common metaphor that people use, but epic is just a size-based metaphor. There's big and there's small. And it's good based on the last comment I made because small things tend to get done more quickly and you learn faster and flow can happen. But when you break work down just on big and small, a lot of times the way things are used are not, size is not the right dimension for understanding it. So story maps express stories in two dimensions, not just big and small, but sort of left to right with uh, interactions, user experiences, flow, if you will, and top to bottom with decomposition, which may or may not be big and small, but it's definitely options. So as an example, if you're building like a, a sh online shopping system, one of the things you want to do is set a payment type. But there's many different payment types. And so if you say, we have an epic called create payment type, and you do the whole thing, or you break it down into a subset of stories, one of those stories might be like pay with a credit card. And so you get that story done, that's great, but who cares if you're not paying for something you want? So Story Map thinks about someone wants to buy something, and you take the thinnest slice through that user experience instead of just breaking things down. I mean, really, the best part is I was already arranging stories this way, and uh, Jeff Patton coined that term, and I was instantly latched onto it because I love metaphor. And I feel like map is a nice metaphor because you don't just buy a map and look at it unless you're a map geek or a cartographer. You buy a map to say, I want to go someplace. Or probably very few people listening ever bought a map, but you open a map on your phone and you say, I want to get from point A to point B. And there's different ways you could go, and you make choices based on criteria like, you know, is it scenic? Is it fast? You know, whatever choices you're making. And I think maps give you the ability to create customer journeys. 
which answer the question not can we get it done, but where do we want to take users? Uh, I think that's a really, really good way to think about it is, is that journey along the way. And when we were, were in the talk, I, I just have to bring this up because um, you, you shared a little bit of your journey. And uh, I think that Prince is one of the greatest artists of all time, personally. I think he's kind of like my secret uh, guilty pleasure. Like, I don't share a lot of people that I listen to a lot of Prince, but I do. Um, so you had mentioned during your talk that there were things that you had learned from Prince about Agile. Can you just give maybe one anecdote of something that you learn from him about Agile? It wasn't so much what I learned about Agile, but it's what I learned about how to produce interesting things. So Prince, one of the things he does, and I've heard that like Peter Gabriel also works this way, is he would work on many songs at the same time. And he would put a song up, and he would do what we call refactoring. When, when the song wasn't sort of clear, he was really smart about being subtractionist. A lot of really great musical people are. And you start taking things away because you have to get the foundation right. This is a classic thing of like, you can only make a turd shine so bright. You know, if the bass and drum tracks are bad, the song doesn't have any soul, especially if it's like more funky stuff like what Prince did. So one was the importance of stripping things back and building them back up and not being scared to do that. Whereas I think sometimes people in software always feel like they have to add more or people in Agile. One of the things I always challenge people in the coaching class that we teach is to say, think of one thing you could do to help your team. And I say, does everybody have one? Everybody raises their hand. And then I say, keep your hand up if you thought about taking something away. And very few hands stay up because most people think about processes as an additive thing. And I don't think that was the origin of this Agile stuff. It was subtractionist. It was lightweight methodologies. The other thing that was cool about being around Prince is, like, he was he didn't really care about tech. He cared about the songs. And that's what I was sort of trying to open the talk with today is to say, you don't really, if you listen to a great song, you don't think about the process that was used because you're immersed in the song. And every once in a while, because it's sadly not as common with software, you fire up a piece of software. For me, the um, most recent one was probably Uber. I was standing on the corner in Boston with a friend, and I was just kind of like, oh, no, no i got to get a cab. And she goes, oh, you should just Uber it. And I was like, what? And it was so easy. It was so obvious that like I started listening, and three weeks later, every business traveler I knew was saying Uber as a verb. And that comes from distilling things down to understanding what the experience is, not the process of the technology. Now, the process and the technologies are, are significant. That's why I like that Agile Manifesto sort of this over that language. It's user experiences and great products over cool tech and great process. It doesn't say one instead of the other. It just says one is more valuable than the other. That's fantastic. Um, I know that we have a very limited amount of time, but uh, you have your your book that um, you were writing, and you were talking about people getting involved in the discussion of that. I was wondering if you could share just a, a quick little intro to your book so that people know what you're going to talk about, and then maybe give the URL um, where people can find out a little more or get involved in that discussion. So I'm actually thrilled that I'm going to finish writing something because um, I think a lot of writing, first thing I wrote turned into a series of videos that are on the DevJam site, one which is about story mapping. So if you go to the DevJam site, you might have to search a little bit. 
because I did the site design, which means it's probably not very good. <laughs> um, the book's working title right now is Products Over um, Process. And what I was talking about today is, <coughs> excuse me, I'm <coughs> looking for people that are trying to do this because I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of, like I, I was mentioning that when, Mar- when I went to Martin Fowler's refactoring talk in 2000, Martin basically said, look, I just hung out with all these other people that were doing it, and I synthesized this. So probably some of the ideas in the book are original, but a lot of them are just what I see people being successful doing, and the more people I see using process to make progress become more courageous about discussing product, which is filled with more ambiguity and uncertainty. Best way to find it right now would probably be go to devjam.com slash product over process. The other thing I was talking about that I would love to plug, too, is this crazy idea of product agility and trying to sort of build a community around people that want to kind of take a lot of the things we're doing and shift their focus away from potentially scrum teams to product teams or safe trains to product communities. And you can find that on productagility.org. Sounds fantastic. Thank you for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. I look forward to getting involved in the conversation about your book, and I'll be pushing it out to other people around. Thank you. Thanks very much. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.